0: All right, this morning our our text is in the book of Acts, so if you have a Bible, find the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 17, and if you have a Red Pew Bible, this is page 927. Uh, The text is chapter 17, we're going to be in the very end of the chapter, verses 30 to 34, and I'll read that and then Albert will come and walk us through this. So again, Acts 17, starting in verse 30 through verse 34, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed him, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Good
1: morning. Happy Easter. Um, three months ago, we went through the gospel of Mark's account of uh, these events. And um, I don't know which year this is for me. I've been a pastor for 18 years, but this is not my 18th message, because um, I, I haven't held the same role, but this is maybe my 10th, <clears throat> and I have to say, it, it's challenging to like try to get a new text and go through it, and so uh, just in kind of uh, reading through the Bible and seeing what we're going to look at next, uh, I did... Uh, land on Acts 17. Uh, Part of it was kind of motivated by, uh, I was doing a Bible study for uh, servant partners, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but they are uh, through InterVarsity and they get folks to come in to the urban centers and do this study and live here for a year or two and so this kind of got me in this mind frame of where we are this morning. Um, So Acts 17, just a little bit of background, a little bit of context as to where this is because we are shifting from our studies in Ecclesiastes to this new book here. Paul is in Athens, and at the time of Paul, this is uh, no longer kind of the political hub of uh, Greece within the Roman Empire. That, That had shifted over to the city of Corinth. But what Athens did retain was just the arts and um, the architecture and the culture and the knowledge. Uh, This was still kind of like the place uh, for those things. And so here we have a record from Luke, who is recording kind of Paul's life here. Um, There's this new movie out, uh, Paul. I haven't seen it yet, so I can't say it's good or not good. I'm just really confused how Jesus um, became Luke. So I I don't know how... Uh, happened. But anyway, um, this is Luke's account of how that transformation was happening. And so what was Paul doing in Athens? Actually, Paul was just kind of like on his way to Corinth. uh, And the stopover was in Athens. And, And so while he's there, uh, he's thinking, well, I'm going to share about these things. He's really thinking about Corinth, though, because he wants to strategically place himself in this uh, these trade routes, in these uh, commerce routes, where the gospel would spread more rapidly because a lot of uh, business is happening around there. And so he's in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him, so that they can all go to Corinth to get, together. And so while he's in Athens, though, Paul's just being Paul, and he can't help but to talk about Jesus and the gospel, so he starts talking about these things, and so some people mock him, uh, some people want to hear a little bit more, and then other people kind of receive Jesus, and so that's what Pastor Steve just read, and that's kind of the context, a brief one, summarized one, of what's happening. You notice that it wasn't until Paul mentioned the resurrection that he started to lose people in this conversation, that this was a place that was actually very much like our own in that pluralism was very well accepted. But there was something about the resurrection that was divisive, even though in Athens there were over 30,000 deities that were worshipped in the city of Athens. So the mention of another god was really not that big of a deal, unless one was an Epicurean, we'll get to that in a little bit, but everybody else was very accustomed to hearing about gods. But it was the mention of the resurrection that received this kind of divisive response from the people. And so Paul takes this challenge. He, he wants to speak on behalf of the gospel. He wants to speak on behalf of the resurrection of Jesus. And that he wasn't just simply presenting new deities to the Athenians to just consider, but he's asking them, this unknown God that you guys created this altar to in verse 23, I want to speak to that. That this is not just adding a couple more gods to your 30,000 gods. This is a little different. I have something different to tell you. And they just thought, yeah, this guy's just coming here like everybody else. Just add him to the 30,000 gods. Like, let's hear him out. That's cool. That's fun. And, yeah, you can add Jesus on there, and, yeah, you can add resurrection on there. We can add both of those gods onto our pantheon of of gods. You see, the Athenians, they didn't just have deities that were personified like Athene, which was how Athens came about. They were named after the goddess Athene or Zeus. They weren't just these personified gods. They were gods that were named after Themes. And so you would have a God that was uh, after virtue. You would have this God of justice. You would have this God for shame. You would have this God for reason. And so you can see how they came up with over 30,000 deities. And since they didn't hear or haven't heard of this God of resurrection and they haven't heard of this Jesus, they take these as foreign gods that Paul is introducing. So let's look at verse 18 at some of the people Paul was talking with. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now Paul, according to his own tradition and custom, if you look back in verse 17, he starts by going to the synagogue and speaking to his brothers and sisters, the Jews, and speaking to them about the resurrection and speaking to them about Jesus. It doesn't get very far. And so then he chooses to go to the marketplace and to speak with um, the Gentiles. And he goes to the Agora, and this is where people conducted their business and their trade. But they were just kind of busy doing what they were doing. Speaking of spiritual things was not their priority. They were there to make a little bit of money. And so you have these spiritual people who are in their places of worship and busy doing that sort of thing and not really doing much else. And then you have people in the marketplace that are just kind of stuck in doing their business dealings. And it sounds very familiar to me of what's happening just in our contemporary culture of people that are just kind of stuck in their places of worship and insulating themselves and being there and then other people just being busy about their work life. And leave me alone. I don't want to talk about this. I don't have time for this. I'm busy making money. and Let me do my thing. And then there was this other group here that he was talking to, the Stoics and the Epicureans. These are philosophers. People who love to think, and they love to talk, but they don't like to do something about what they think and they talk about. They just like to think and talk like this. Again, very, very prevalent in the Bay Area. <laughs> Maybe the most out of all three groups is this one. They love to talk and they like to think and then not do anything. And so you have these two camps of philosophy mentioned here where the, there we have the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they're actually quite on pretty polar opposite ends. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and we still have these two philosophies of thought, which if you just kind of walk outside, you'll find somebody right away you can talk about these things with, and you'll find that they are either Epicureans or Stoics, many of them. Now, Epicureans were atheists. They did not believe in the existence of God. They denied it. They rejected the idea that there was life after death. These folks were materialists who believed that life was the only thing that really existed. Anything outside of that is uh, non-existent. That's not true. And so having this kind of thought, the only thing to live for is life itself. Right now, in the present, and you got to get the most out of it. So hedonism, uh, just seeking pleasure, that is the highest virtue. Pleasure is the highest virtue. Anything that caused displeasure, not good. Not part of what we want. That, that's, not, that's not our thing. So this motto, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, that is a Epicurean. Really, really prevalent today, just living for today. Now, we wouldn't call them Epicureans today because the culinary world has hijacked that term. <laughs> and in today's definition, I am very much an Epicurean. I, if any of you know me, just for, even had a conversation with me, you know that I love food. And my figure proves it. But today, we would call these people existentialists. And they live to experience the moment for pleasure. Displeasure, get it out of my sight. That is hell. But they don't believe in hell. Um, And then there are the Stoics, the opposite end of that, the Stoics. Stoics are pantheists. They believe that every material thing, is God so everything is God and that God is not a separate entity of being God but it's in everything God's everything so rather than living for the moment they've resigned themselves to take on whatever came their way and to just deal with it because it's God and so God's in all this stuff so we just deal with this stuff and so that phrase deal with it which I use very often with my own children that's when I become stoic that's, that's a stoic kind of phrase, deal with it, right? So there were these folks that were huge champions and proponents of moderation, everything in moderation. So you don't get too emotional of really great things that happened in life, and you don't get too emotional on really bad things that happened in life. You just, you kind of just are there apathetic, and apathy is their greatest virtue, which I know in marriages, you want someone that's totally apathetic. <laughs> can you imagine being married to a stoic? Honey, you won't believe it. I got promoted my job and we're, we're gonna get double what we make and we can get that house that we're like, and then the husband's just like. Stoic. So if you meet these people, our modern-day word for them would be fatalists. They're they're fatalists, and we have quite a few modern-day Stoics in the Bay Area as well. So it was these two camps that were conversing with Paul, and and they didn't come with very nice words at all. You take a look at um, what they asked of Paul. What does this babbler wish to say? Um, This is an insult. This is a... a babbler was a, a little bird in Athens that uh, was in the marketplace. And the babbler would go over there in the marketplace and see some seeds. And so would go peck at some seeds over there. And then, oh, it's some seeds over here. And they'd fly over here and pick some seeds there. And over here and over here. And they would just kind of do this. And then, so what are they saying? Paul's just this insignificant guy who just comes into our place of mental giants and he's just gathering a little idea here and a little idea there, one here and he's just kind of collecting them and then feeding them to us thinking like it's something big. When it's just like little things here and there. You're not as bright as we are. You're not as smart as we are. You're just kind of like picking things here and there. And so there he's attempting to discuss these things with these guys he he doesn't get very far with the epicureans because they don't like what they hear but with the uh stoics they're willing to hear because everything's god so they're willing to hear and so again all these types of people we find here verse in in, in chapter 17 of acts very prevalent in the the world today very prevalent in the church today right uh, religious weirdos very prevalent in the church today not necessarily this church, I'm just saying church, church. And, and if you're saying like, well, that religious weirdo, he must not talk, be talking about me. Um, I am talking about you if you're saying that because you're probably the weirdo. Anyway, removed from like real life, right? And then powerless to bring about change in people's lives. Faith communities that are like this. And then we have existentialists in our world, people who are atheistic in thought, who reject the supernatural and they focus on just the present existence. And we do definitely have those self-sufficient, self-reliant, independent fatalists who pride themselves in being able to handle just whatever in life comes my way, I can handle it, or we can handle it. We have a lot of those folks too. Now Paul wasn't there to debate them on their philosophies or debate any of this stuff. He was there simply to deliver the word of Jesus, the word of the power of God unto salvation. So then they decided to bring him to the Areopagus, where dialogue and conversation can kind of be more than just kind of like in the marketplace. And they love to hear about things. They love new ideas. They love philosophy. They love talking and speaking. And essentially, this is what Paul is asking them at the Areopagus. He's saying, why is it so unbelievable that God can raise the dead? Now for an Epicurean, it's like, of course God can't because he doesn't exist. And for the Stoic, they're thinking like, what? How can this microphone raise someone from the dead? How can this pulpit, how can that pew? Because everything's a God. So this is kind of confusing for them. But part of the difficulty people have is that people don't believe things that can happen without an explanation in today's world. That natural law is the gospel. The, the natural law is our Bible. And if things don't happen within these parameters, going back to Ecclesiastes, under the sun, right, without God. If, you, if you've been in our Ecclesiastes series, you're familiar with that. If not, go back and take a listen to those. If it's not within the under the sun parameters, then it's not real. Now, I, I, I don't want to use our time this morning to talk about the evidences behind the resurrection because I think a good amount of you already know the apologetics behind it. And if you don't, there's plenty of books out there. There's plenty of things that you can read up on or listen to that'll equip you with those things. I just don't think that that's the primary reason why people will believe in the resurrection is that if you show them evidence of it. Because I think the primary reason that I'm finding here in our pluralistic society, right here in the Bay Area, is that people will give us a pass on anything we believe. You can just say you believe in whatever, and they'll just say, oh, great, good for you. So I believe in the resurrection. Oh, that's great, wonderful for you. Or I believe like a turtle holds the whole earth up. like, yay, great, that's great, That's good for you. We're allowed to believe what we believe here. Maybe not so in other parts of the country, but here, yes. So it's not about the evidence here. In our Bay Area culture, it's more about the why. Why does it even matter that your God is resurrected? Why would I even care? What's the purpose behind that stuff? Now I need to take several steps back in order to present a why, because it all matters if God is indeed the creator of the universe. And if you can give us that, then we have a place to start with. Then we can, we can kind of, like, debate about what's next. But if we can't agree about that, then we have to have a different conversation. So where Paul was, they're open to accepting this. Okay, we're going to hear you out. Let's hear this. And Paul points out, God is creator. And are we Okay. And so then we go to verse 24, chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. There are many there in Athens. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now here, we do get some pushback about God being the creator of the universe. We do get some debate here. People have a lot of thoughts about the origin of life and and we believe that God is the one to create it all. As Christians, then then if that is true, then we are accountable to a creator or the creator. And then we are responsible for what we are created for. So if we acknowledge a creator, we are accountable to the creator and we are, are accountable to what we're created for and some people don't like that because we want to be our own God. We want to dictate our own terms of living and what we believe is right and wrong good and evil. We want to determine all of these things and the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and that God sustains life. Now it's obvious that none of us created the heavens and the earth and none of us sustain life. Life. It's also obvious that God does not need anything from us because he's God. And yet, on the other hand, for those of us who believe that we are these mini-gods, we are extremely needy. And if we believe that we are gods to determine what is good and evil, to determine for ourselves what we think and what we do and all these sorts of things, in essence, a God, then we are very weak gods. Because none of us here can live more than a few minutes without oxygen. None of us here can live more than a few days without water. None of us here can live more than a few months without food. We are extremely weak gods to think that we are self-existent beings. The Bible tells us that we are children of God, that we are his offspring, verse 29. We are God's creation, and there are things that he instructs us to be in, Communion with him, to have a, a, a relationship with him. One of those things is repentance. Verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. I don't think anyone is exempt from this. I try to do a word study to see if all means something different, and I also did a word study on everywhere, uh, to see if everywhere means something different. All people everywhere. No one's exempt. And so if there is an ounce of pride within someone, there may be an objection to this because they believe they don't have anything to repent of. That is false. You'd be correct to say that you don't want to repent, but there, is, there are things to repent of. This is the creator of the universe. It's not just the one who created you, but everything around you and sustains life, the sustainer of life. And God is not wanting us to repent because he needs to be right or assured or affirmed or that he's insecure about himself. It's because of a very unpopular subject to talk about, which I'm going to talk about even though it's very unpopular. It's the subject of judgment. Judgment. So I already mentioned some very unpopular things, Uh, repentance, people don't want to hear about that one, judgment, they don't want to hear about that one, they don't want to hear about hell, they don't want to hear about sin, and there are churches that don't want to talk about any of these difficult subject matters because they feel that they are offensive, they feel they are unhelpful, they feel they are divisive. And I need to tell you that we're not a church that seeks out those things, not at all. We actually want to be peaceful, helpful, and unifying. And that's actually what repentance is all about. That's what it's all about. There's this picture that I want to draw for you. There's, there's such a serious offense between two countries that they are going to enter into war with one another. The offense is that serious. So in essence, judgment. Right? War, judgment. Now, what needs to happen in order for there to be peace? If you have these two countries ready to go at war with one another. There needs to be repentance. In order to bring peace, unity, helpfulness... There needs to be a repentance. There needs to be a change of heart. There needs to be a change of posture towards peace, towards unity, towards being helpful. And within these relationships, whether they are countries or people, there needs to be a step taken to move towards peace for everybody involved to achieve peace. One party has to initiate peace. God did that. God initiated peace. He sent the Prince of Peace, Jesus, to take on sins, another word that people in the church are hesitant to use, to take sins of the world. He took on everything that was out of place and not how he created it to be. So God initiated the peace process. And now... What does the other party have to do? You either accept it or you deny it. If you accept it, you need to change. Your heart needs to change. Your posture needs to change. Repentance. And those who have not accepted God's invitation, His initiation of peace, are moving towards war, judgment, Verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. We can't water down these scriptural, biblical words such as sin, judgment, repentance. And the reason being is because we have souls at stake. We have living souls, and it would be a disservice not to be honest about those things. Because God will judge those who don't accept his offer of peace. Who don't want the peace treaty. You see how God has already gone way above and way beyond. Because from the very start, this was his creation. He created it. He created you and me. And then his creation rebels against what he created. Then he offers peace. He's coming with a peace treaty, even though we are the ones who offended. We are the ones that invaded. How God originally created the world to to be was violated by our sin. And we've wanted to be God soon after that creation. We've been wanting to be God ever since. We've been making judgments on our own to to determine what is good and what is evil. When all the while we have been in the wrong because we initiated the war. We invaded God's kingdom. We're attempting to colonize his kingdom. He created it. So then he sends the Prince of Peace, Jesus, to mediate peace. And he says, any wrongs that have been done, you, you guys violated my creation. It was my kingdom. You guys did wrong against it. I'm willing to wipe it clean. I'm willing to accept it all if you accept the peace treaty. If you accept Jesus' gift of paying for this rebellion, this uprising, this revolution towards the kingdom that I created, if you accept his life for yours, it's clear. I'm willing not to war. There will be no judgment against you. And he's saying... But the judgment day is coming because not everyone's going to want to do that. So there will be a day for God to reclaim what is rightfully his, his creation. He created the universe. We violated the terms. He initiates peace through Jesus. And then people have the nerve to blame God with all sorts of accusations. How can God do this? How can God do that? If God was real, then this. When in reality, we would never allow this in our own home. Would you? You go out and you create a beautiful home. And you start adopting all these kids, these orphans that have nothing. And you provide them with food and shelter and all this great stuff. And you provide everything. And then within those kids, they start killing each other. And they start lying about each other. And some of them come up to you and say, you know what? I want your spot, Dad. Get off. I want to determine what's right and what's wrong. I want to determine how we live. We should be able to determine how we live. And then Dad says, man, you've broken my heart. But I'm willing to wipe it all away if you accept this peace treaty. Everything will be good. Create it as it was. All those past wrongs. Even the future ones you're going to do. I'm willing to overlook those things in the sense that someone else is paying for them. Would you sign it? And bring about peace? Some people will. And then there's others who are like, no. I want your spot. And we would never let that happen. Just in our own home in our own businesses we wouldn't let that happen and yet we continue to undermine the scriptures and, and what they teach and our struggles with sin are no different from when we were first created it's the same question that plays through people's minds today that came up all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 it's the same question it's this one did God actually say and then you fill in the dot or you fill in this blank you know, did God actually say that and it's it's the same thing. It's the same thing all over and over again. Whatever thing you want to plug in that people want to compromise or get away with or whatever, it's always the same thing. Did God actually say that? And there's this constant undermining of the authority of the word of God, constantly asking why of God when first of all God doesn't answer to us. He's God. And secondly, it's his Creation is his. So when you ask, why can't I? And then you just plug in whatever it is. It wasn't yours. It's not yours. It's his. Now, of course, God has reasons as to why he created the things he did. You look at chapter 17, verse 2. And you see that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. You look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue. So reasoning is extremely important. And here's something to reason through. Who are we to question God who is not bound by time or space, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, when we all know that we are not? Is it possible that an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent creator God knows why he wants us to live a certain way. When he has the span of eternity in view and we have our lifespan of whatever it is, 70 years and maybe a generation forward and a generation back so maybe we have a couple hundred years of history of knowing these sorts of things who, who are we? What makes us think that we know better in, in this short span of human history versus what God has a view of? And even in our span of recorded human history, we just haven't done very well. You look at all the injustices of the world, and they still exist. You look at people striving for peace, and it still doesn't exist. You look at all the social ills of the world, and they still exist. We've had thousands of years to figure this out, and yet here we are. And we think we know better than God, even though the picture of our existence from the beginning to the end, we just get a sliver and he has the whole picture. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Yet here we are today, people mocking God. God who knows beginning to the end, who say, we want to live the way we want to live, and the resurrection, like, who cares? That's just whatever. That's a a myth of 2,000 years ago, just like people in Paul's day thinking, that that myth is a 50-year-old myth. Now, why don't people believe in the resurrection? Because if we believe in the resurrection, we also believe that there's a judgment. Otherwise, there's no need for a resurrection. And so it's easier although lazier, to just say there's no resurrection, then I don't have to worry about a judgment. Simple. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Everyone comes into judgment. But Jesus wants to stand there. He wants to take that on. And he seeks to reconcile us to God, to provide a peace treaty. But we know that not everyone accepts this. It happened in the day of Paul. Not everyone accepts that. God created the universe. He sustains it. He will judge the wrongs of the world. Injustice will no longer continue. Righteousness will. It says, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. People mistake God's judgment ...to be that of hate, which it is not. It is out of righteousness, according to the Scriptures. And John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. So when people reject God, they are rejecting love. However, God is so patient, and God is so long-suffering. And for those who have not received Jesus, Jesus as this mediator for peace... ...to receive his gift of love, to stand in your place of judgment because of your sins... I mean, how many years has it been that you've been in a church, that you've heard the same message over and over again, that you've read the Bible, that you know the story? like, how many, how many years has it been? Think about it, and yet you're here again today. And maybe you're still hard-hearted, and maybe you're still thinking, like, that myth stuff, that mythological stuff, I can't believe I'm here again on another Easter, and I'm doing this again. But yet you're here, and it's no accident because he's long-suffering and he's patient and he's knocking on the door of your heart still waiting for you to say yes. He wants that. It's not an accident. You're here this morning. And yet he offers his love to you over and over again. And as it gets rejected over and over again, I mean, if, if you don't accept his love, the mo- what's most dear, what else can he offer you? <laughs> What else can he give to you? He's given you everything. He's given himself on the cross to be peacefully reconciled with you so that you don't face judgment, you don't face war. What else can he offer? Now you recall that the Athenians were fascinated by ideas, fascinated by concepts, philosophy. Just like many people here, people love to talk philosophize about their thoughts. or so many ideas and theories they love to talk about. And so Paul sees that altar to the unknown God. And he used it as a starting point to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. He takes the conversation to who Jesus is, who, what he claims. And then he says, kind of, in essence, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead that he's now alive? And then there's this group that thinks he's absolutely nuts. There's a group that, yeah, we're willing to talk about it some more. And then there's a group that is ready to receive it. nothing new there will be people that just walk out and back into the world they go there are some people and I hope you fall into one of these two camps you want to talk more you want to converse a little bit more about this stuff and then there's that third group that yeah let's let's accept the treaty let, let me sign it this is very unlike me in terms of wanting to talk about these sorts of difficult things. I I, I don't enjoy talking about judgment. I don't enjoy talking about sin. I don't enjoy talking about these subject matters at all. But I have to also let you know that what has happened in the last couple of weeks has really sparked me to talk about these things because, as some of you know, um, our worship director and creative arts director, Jane, has late stage cancer. And she'll be on medical leave for a few months. There's a new urgency that was put inside of me that I can't sugarcoat the stuff. I, I, I would be doing a huge disservice to you because none of us knows our time. We just don't know when that is. We're praying for a miracle for Jane. We're praying for her to be completely healed. We're holding out our faith for that. We, are, we're, we want that. God knows that we want that. We just don't know when our time is. So if you're here this morning, it's not an accident. There is an urgency. We don't know his day of return. And it's not a scare tactic. It's just the realities of life. You can walk right out the street today and not be here. Let's pray. God, we are um, thankful that you love us that much, that you are so patient with us, uh, even in our rebellion, even in believing that we are these many gods. Um, I, for one, am thankful for that, as I have uh, loved ones who have not received your gift of grace. And I pray God for people's hearts and their minds to be softened to receive from you that a true spiritual work would be done. God, we lift up our sister Jane and we do ask you for a complete healing. (coughs) Also recognize God that there are challenging things that people are going through in our church. And we want to lift them up in prayer also. In Jesus' name, amen.